Hi, I'm Richard, the founder of 10 Adventures, and this is the 10 Adventures podcast. Each week, we talk to real people about real adventures as they explore this incredible planet we all live on. Welcome back to the 10 Adventures podcast. Today, we're talking epic walks, and one of the most beautiful and most famous is the Pacific Crest Trail. It starts in the border with Mexico and the U.S., goes all the way through along the Pacific Crest, and ends in Canada. And here to talk about this trail is former politician and current CEO of Glenbow Ranch Park Foundation, Jeremy Farkas. Hey, Jeremy, welcome to the podcast. Hey, buddy. Thanks so much for having me. Um, I'm super interested in to chat with you because I've noticed, you know, you're a public figure here in Calgary, and it seems to me you've changed... Um, as a result of this, but maybe that's just my perception. So um, before we go into that question, my first question is you walk the PCT, you'd had a really, I can only imagine running for mayor, the challenge, the stress that may be. Um, but why did you choose to do a through hike and why the PCT? Well, I, I'd always thought about doing something like this and it was one of my grandmother's dreams actually, but uh, she unfortunately passed away uh, during the campaign, during COVID. And she never got to a point in her life where she was able to walk uh, something like the Appalachian Trail. And I figured because she had passed away, because uh, we didn't really have a, an incredible way to be able to honor her in the moment, I wanted to do something by design. I wanted to do something intentional where I could follow this calling. And then it was just a number of different things kind of lined up for me, both personally and professionally. Like hardly anybody's going to have the... Uh, just career window or runway to leave for six or seven months. Uh, but uh, whether I liked it or not, uh, the election loss uh, gave me that opening. And and then finally, uh, we were able to do it as a fundraiser for big brothers and big sisters of Calgary and area. So I had a lot of people after the election reach out to me and say, hey, the next time you run for something, I want to be the first one to write you a check. And in politics, people will tell you that a lot of that is so-called moral support, but in this case, it was actual financial support. So I had a, a couple st checks that were stacking up on my desk, and I figured, you know, I could run for something, but it didn't have to be politics. So a number of things lined up, and uh, my grandmother, uh, Granny Liz, she would always tell me, don't just be good, be good for something. So I was able to do a lot of different things simultaneously with the trip, which really uh, contributed, I think, toward the end of it. Uh, in me being able to finish it and endure some of the mental challenges. And, and you raised a ton of money. Like, you know, these are, it was well into the six figures. I can't, was, was it 400 grand? Am I misremembering that? It was a big number. I remember when I saw it. Yeah. I, I remember when uh, I was chatting with uh, Ken Lee McQuello, the, uh, the brand new at the time CEO of big brothers and big sisters. We had this incredible, amazing goal. We thought if we were lucky, if we played our cards right for six months, if we really banged and drummed up the support, then we'd be able to raise 50 grand. And it was to my astonishment that I think it was March 7th or something that we had our press conference and we announced that this was happening. And then uh, it gave me five days to kind of get ready. But by the end of those days and uh, before I'd even set a single foot on the trail, we had hit that $50,000 goal. So we, we doubled that and then we doubled it again. Uh, but it was an incredible opportunity for a number of reasons because I got to uh, live out just a, a lifelong 
type of dream of mine, but then I also really got a sense of who my friends were after the election. There's a lot of folks who stepped up to support me, had no interest in associating with me, period, in terms of politics. But it was quite astonishing to me to see the, the level of support and the fact that it wasn't necessarily uh, uh, my friends in politics who were supporting me. Oh, that's really interesting. It's uh, uh, I can I can kind of see that. I want to dig into the politics because you mentioned, oh, you know, things just came together after your political run. Um, but there's tens of thousands of politicians that have hard political runs. You're the only one that's done the PCT. Um, is there something, you know, you have this, you know, personal connection of wanting to do it, but is there something after this bruising political run where you just needed some time off? You know, a lot of people go back to a job that, you know, a week later, is, 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 is there something, you know, it almost feels like you were searching for something or having some time to process. Was that part of this decision to undertake this long walk? Well, I think absolutely. And something you don't realize is, uh, like when you're an elected official, and in my case, I was a Calgary city councillor. When I ran and I lost that race for mayor, it's basically loser leaves town. Uh, immediately following my loss in the election, I had lost my job essentially and was unemployed. And it, it was a very, it was a very interesting and stressful and frustrating time. But one of the first calls that I got after that was say an offer to basically do the typical track that a lot of these politicians do. It's usually in government relations or lobbying. But the first opportunity I had was actually to become a lobbyist for a tobacco uh, industry firm to try to, you say, <laughs> and I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to throw anyone under the bus, but the, the opportunity was essentially to try to make it easier to, to brand uh, e-cigarettes and such to kids. So like I didn't take the gig, but then I figured, well, you know, if I have this name recognition, if I have these connections, if I have the communication ability and the ability to raise money, why don't I actually use that for something that's good rather than just trying to take the typical track or path that uh, most people out of politics will do. So in my case, it was relatively, it was, it was a pretty high risk endeavor to kind of go all in on this, especially so soon after the election, but an incredible amount of people uh, stepped up to support me. And when I was in the right mindset to, to seek and, and receive that mentorship, the, the mentors that I needed in my life uh, arrived. And, but I won't understate just the, the value that there was going from such a high stakes, incredibly stressful uh, environment here in Calgary where practically everybody knew me. Uh, half the public uh, was happy that I lost and... <laughs> And we're gloating about it. And maybe the other half were sad that I lost, but also pitied me. And I didn't really like either of them. So it was very uh, freeing to be able to go to a brand new place where essentially nobody knew me and I could sort of start fresh. Uh, uh, a lot of folks don't realize that your anonymity is actually quite valuable and priceless because uh, especially during COVID, like all of us who were involved at the city and the provincial level, it was so... It was very intense and not to say that it wasn't intense for everybody, but in my case, you'd have people trying to camp out in my backyard. I'd have people banging on my door, threatening to murder my family, things like that. So it was just a very, very high uh, tension moment. And it was so incredibly valuable for me in a number of different ways to be able to leave that at least momentarily and to, to do something uh, wild and crazy, <laughs> like trying to uh, walk across the continent. Uh, and, and so, you know, you decide to do this incredible walk. What's your background with the outdoors? You know, we've talked to some people who literally 
you know, they start training a couple of days before they've never camped outside. Then they go do some incredible, uh, aspect. I, I, I think I, I've read that you're a, a runner, so you obviously must do some, some stuff outside, but like, was this second nature to you to carry everything on your back and go sleep outside for night after night? Well, this probably surprises a lot of folks who have only followed me through politics, but I think there's a lot more to me than just politics. So uh, prior to my trip, I was a certified wilderness first responder had probably spent at least a um, hundred nights in various backcountry settings through uh, our, our beautiful trails and uh, backcountry experiences here in in Banff and Lake Louise and Jasper and Kananaskis. So I, I had quite a bit of uh, grounding in terms of the the technical skills there. But you know, a, a challenge like the Pacific Crest Trail, I think, regardless of uh, how prepared you are going into it, it's an absolutely <laughs> insane. Uh, endeavor to think that uh, for 100 and 100 plus days, in my case, I think it was 172 days, just starting in Mexico, pointing myself north, uh, walking as far as I could. There's nothing that prepares you for uh, both the good and the bad on the trail. And uh, I think there's a quote that life uh, laughs while you try to make plans. But for me, uh, it was a good lesson personally that life doesn't always go to plan, but that doesn't mean that it's it goes worse. I think almost always it goes better. Uh, I, I, I love that message because it is, you know, I talk to people of like a 20 year plan and I just think life's so chaotic. How can I, you I wish. Goal? Like it's, it's nice to have that, but like opportunities happen. Life, life changes. Um, the early days. So, you know, you're down in, in the border of the U S and Mexico when you're starting this, like, what are you feeling as you set out on this? Is it relief? Is it apprehension? Is it, you know, are you just, are you looking forward to time to reflect? Is it something totally different? It's, it's a little bit different for everybody. Uh, I think it's a couple thousand people start every year in Mexico and try to make it uh, back to Canada. Uh, I got the incredible opportunity to meet so many uh, great people and through the course of getting to meet them, their challenges, their opportunities, their struggles, their successes, their setbacks in life, it really gave me a lot more context in terms of what I was going through. But it was, it was interesting because I think unlike many of the people I met, my journey was playing out in public. And there's a lot of folks who thought that uh, what I was doing was a, a giant ripoff or a hoax to begin with. So every day I'd be host, I'd be posting my uh, GPS uh, coordinates. I'd be posting to Strava so that people could follow me and, uh, and see how the journey was going. So it was, it was a much more public journey than I think I would have liked in hindsight. It would have been nice just to kind of just uh, do this on my own, but for better or for worse, very much for better, uh, I'd invited the public to come and follow. So I was posting uh, journals every single day, posting through social media, Facebook, videos, stuff like that to try to bring people along. And I would say in the early days, I was real nervous, but there's almost... Uh, like a moment where you decided, well, you've burnt the boats, you're here in the desert in Mexico, you got all the stuff on your back and there's nothing left to do besides just start walking. And I think in the early days, especially, I felt such huge uh, momentum and buzz because our, our fundraising goals were just being smashed at home, which really helped, I think for me, solve and maybe smooth out some of the rougher days because not every day is an amazing vacation. You have a lot of days, there's setbacks, there's, you're in pain too, starting to walk between 40 and 60 kilometers per day. Your, your toenails are uh, peeling off, your lips are cracked and all the rest. But I think 
through it all, though, I felt a lot of energy and buzz because so many uh, people were getting involved in the work that Big Brothers and Big Sisters do, and they were sending me these messages. And of course, I had a lot of haters as well, but I'm the kind of personality where, you know, I get a I get an email or a text message telling me why I can't do something. My immediate, really res- immediate response is to prove them wrong. <laughs> I love that. Um, I-, I want to talk a little bit about the the challenges of the trail. And, you know, some people think this is a straightforward walk, but there can be some really challenging early season conditions in the Sierra. Did you, did you deal with those? Can you maybe describe some of the challenges you had to deal with? Yeah, so I started in March, which is early... Uh, by the standards of the through hike. And I think it was on my second day actually going into Mount Laguna that I had snow. So from day one, uh, sleet, uh, extreme heat, extreme cold. I had to pack to be ready for, say, uh, plus 35 degrees Celsius, shifts down to minus 10, minus 15. So just being prepared for all of that, I think, was uh, really, really instrumental. And plus, you you learn a lot as you go and you make a lot of stupid mistakes. And you keep making mistakes, but you hope that they're different kinds of mistakes and they're not as bad as, uh, uh, r- rather, you're hoping that you're improving as you go along from those setbacks. And you're also learning from other people. There, There's an incredible uh, trail community called Trail Angels uh, along the way, along every single one of the 2,600 miles. So you're you also really have to challenge yourself physically, but I think more so it's mentally putting yourself out there uh, being willing and able to to be vulnerable, to to lean on other people for help. I think that that was the, the biggest challenge for me was living sort of a, and personally and professionally, kind of like a, a lone wolf mindset of strong, rugged individualism and uh, persistence. I can do this on my own. Well, you know, that type of attitude, it doesn't pan out very well on the trail. You're, you're, out, you're immediately thrown into a situation where, you have to be somebody that other people can rely on, and you also have to be somebody who's willing to rely on others. So that that mental dimension was, it really threw me off to start. But as I got more and more comfortable with asking for help, uh, being willing to stick my thumb out as a hitchhiker like anyone else would do, or to uh, to ask other people for their advice and their tips, my experience got so much better as I came to terms with the fact that uh, I guess the best way to sum it up on the trail, they have the saying, if you want to go fast, go alone. And if you want to go far, go with friends. I'm interested in learning a little bit more about your experience with the relationships of other people on the trail. You talk about being a lone wolf. Um, did you find that, you know, you made, you know, you made friends that you're still in contact with? Were you, you know, did you join a group and kind of have a, a group of kind of like trail friends? I... I, I still think absolutely every single day about people I've met. Uh, I probably met over the course of the journey, many thousands of people. There's a good couple dozen that uh, come to mind. I'll be just walking or looking at something and just remembering a, a joke or a shared experience, or I may look at a photo or uh, Facebook might show me a memory and it'll bring up, uh, it'll bring up uh, just experiences. And there, it's, it's a very bittersweet feeling, but uh it's interesting. Everyone who goes on the trail has such an incredible story, a, a reason, a passion that's sort of driven them to be there. And it, it's not all uh, sunshine and uh, rainbows, right? There's there's challenges, there's setbacks, there's reasons that people have uh, decided to throw themselves at such an incredible challenge like that. But yeah, by far, it was the people who 
made the experience what it was for me. And, you know, I think back to some pretty views and uh, incredible experiences in the mountains and the forest and the desert, but all the highlights, uh, the top 10 out of 10 moments that I could uh, recite for you, they were all shared with other people. What What's an average day like on the PCT? You know, I, I think a lot of people have gone backpacking. How is it different on the, on the PCT versus someone who's just, you know, done a trip in one of the national parks in the U S or Canada? So I was really fortunate in that my election loss was in the end of October, which gave me November, December, January to really throw myself at the training. So, uh, there's a nearby mountain called Prairie mountain here in uh, yep. K country. I just threw myself at it sometimes several times a day getting in the vertical elevation. And when I started on the Pacific Crest Trail, it meant that I was uh, probably much more fit than the other people uh, who were just uh, starting, say, a summer vacation or uh, were recently retired. So all this to say is that the the more prepared you are, the better investment you have in your gear and your uh, physical abilities, the easier it'll be. So uh, my daily experience was relatively straightforward, given that I could average between 60 and 90 kilometers per day. It meant that I was only maybe a couple days at most between resupply points. So I'd wake up, uh, have my morning coffee, watch the sunrise, do a little bit of uh, journaling, uh, plan out where I was going to go for the day. I'd have to determine in advance how much water I'd need, where I'd be stopping for lunch, where I'd be hoping to camp. And then uh, again, nothing really... Like the life on the trail never 100% uh, goes to plan, but through hikers for us to succeed, you have to have some element of planning. So I would walk as far as I could for the day. Sometimes it would get so unbearably hot that uh, say around 1 to 3 p.m. I'd have to siesta and just try to <laughs> hide under a yucca tree or a cactus or something. And then I'd just keep going until it started to get dark and then uh, uh, pitch my tent wherever, wherever I was. But I was fortunate in that the sections that I was on the trail were relatively short, which meant that at a given time, I only really needed to carry, say, two or three days of food at most. But for individuals, say, who start, were starting at, say, 20 or 30 kilometers uh, per day, that meant that they'd be going, say, seven or eight days between resupplies, which made it a lot more challenging logistically for them because their pack would be a lot ever heavier. So it's almost like it's kind of a rich get richer situation. The faster you can be, means the faster that you can be. So if my pack was under 15 pounds, that meant I could really, really uh, haul ass and cover uh, a stretch of territory that somebody carrying, say, a 50-pound pack couldn't. So this is all to say that the, the daily life, there's no one standard. But for me, I tried to uh, go as quickly as I could. I tried to really challenge myself. And I'd gone into it with that type of mentality. And Looking back and uh, recalling some of my first days, I just really wish that I had taken it slower. Uh, there's moments that uh, I wish I had just stayed to savor them. And it was really up until about, I'd say, halfway through the trail that I decided that, or I realized that this was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Why am I robbing myself of it by trying to do it as fast as possible? So there's a point at around halfway through the Sierra that I decided that I was just going to milk it for all it was. I probably could have done it faster than 170 days, but uh, uh, looking back, it feels like it's just an experience that I'm never going to have the chance to replicate. So toward the end, I really tried to savor every moment, especially for the the people that I was beginning to meet and, and form much stronger friendships with. A, a lot of people, when they go on one of these long through hikes, 
they noticed a dramatic change in their physical and mental health. Now, you went in there in incredible shape, but did you notice a change in just kind of like your mental health and kind of like, you know, the day-to-day stress we all have or just how we feel? Um, how did this How did this walk change you mentally or did it? Um, you know, I, I've tried to answer this question for myself, but I, it's hard for me to say what, what is attributable to going from campaign and political and public life to private life versus going from private life to time on the trail. Because when I was on the campaign and when I was a Calgary city councilor, I was working between 90 and hundred hours a week, uh, through the course of a week, we may receive say a thousand to 2000 phone calls, emails, I might have to go to campaign events from about 7 a.m. all the way to 11 p.m. every single day, rinse and repeat. So when you think about when you start in terms of busyness from about 11 out of 10, uh, going from that to just sort of regular life and the hustle and bustle, that was a huge jarring experience for me. But going from just regular life to the trail is a whole other extreme too because time moves so much differently. It moves slower. Um you're much more present and in the moment. And if I could attribute the the improvement to my own mental health to anything, I would say it's just uh, having to quit cold turkey on the social media, not being inundated with the text messages, the notifications, and all the rest. And it wasn't a, it wasn't something I intended to do because I was still addicted to sort of politics and the news, and I wanted to know what this new mayor and the city councilor were doing. But it was the best possible thing for me because I was in settings where there wasn't cell reception for five days ahead of me and five days behind. So I, I, I couldn't have been in the loop even if I wanted to, which was just an incredible benefit. And I've tried to, to the extent possible, carry forward uh, some of these habits and some of these learnings into my uh, daily routine, routine since I've returned so that I can kind of try to keep, uh, keep some of the, the, those more healthier practices. So I'm really interested in digging into that a little bit more. So kind of before uh, you did this walk, I, I knew you through, you know, you'd see videos that would pop up of sound bites of you on, you know, on Reddit or, or, or YouTube. And then uh, on Reddit now, you comment kind of on the Calgary thread. And to me, these seem like two completely different people. And um, I'm just wondering, are they, are you that different from kind of who you were before? Is it just the medium that you're, you know, when writing people are typically more thoughtful, like, is this the trail? Is this you leaving politics? Like what accounts for me as someone who's like, I'm not super political, um, but just kind of seeing like these, you seem very different after this walk and just your comments. Um, what, what happened do you think? Or, or is, is it, is it just, just the medium? You know, because the vast majority of people know me only through politics. They assume that everything that I do has a political dimension to it. And it's, it's challenging because if I were trying to answer this question, have I changed or haven't I changed? You know, it's sort of like how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. It's just, it's, it's kind of a useless exercise. All I can do is say for the listeners right now, think of yourself, uh, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, have you changed? Well, it's sort of obvious, uh, the question. But all that to say is that, you know, I was elected as one of the youngest city councillors ever. And when you're in your 20s, being thrown into a role like that with a ton of responsibility, a ton of scrutiny, a lot of attention, uh, of course, you're going to things up. And in my case, there's so many things that I look back on just in terms of my own lack of life experience 
Like a good example is uh, we had one of the first things our council debated was, say, this parental leave policy. And I voted against it because I thought, you know, it's the job of the city councillor to be there representing their constituents and how dare them if they want to start a family or to take all the time off because democracy doesn't sleep. This is such an important job and all the rest. But I was the only one voting against it because in hindsight, it's just so ridiculous because with some life experience, I now realize, you know, every single line of work should be able to accommodate this. And it doesn't make you a worse city councillor if you have a family. I think it makes you a better one. And we're in a position now in terms of politics where we want a broad diversity of opinion. We want a diversity of viewpoints. And why wouldn't we want something like a parental leave policy, right? So just in terms of just life experience, I think a lot of how I've looked at some of these challenges and problems and opportunities, I think it's changed just as a result of growing older. And some people sort of assume that I was, say, in my 50s when I started. I, I don't feel like I look like that, but <laughs> some people assume that I, that, but I was literally still paying off my student loans when I was, um, uh, when I was first elected, right? So, so that's the first part. But the second part, I think, is more in terms of the politics. Like losing the election really got it gave me the chance to be able to learn who my friends were. Uh, there was a lot of folks who uh, surrounded me when I was in office based on what uh, they thought I could do for them and a much more transactional way. And I didn't realize that. And I think winter. But, I think regardless of whether I noticed, I, I started to buy into the, my own hype about myself. And I think there's a level of ego and arrogance to that. And losing the election was the best possible thing that could have happened to me because, again, I got to learn who my friends were. And it was very interesting because I come from a more, I think, conservative side of the spectrum. And I sort of bought into this idea that, you know, if you're a friend, you're a conservative. And if you're a conservative, you're right. And if you're on the left of the spectrum. That means you're my uh, adversary. You're not my friend, that sort of thing. And it was very challenging to my worldview when <laughs> I'll be, I'll be blunt with you, man. Like when I lost, it was mostly conservatives who dumped me and it was often liberals who reached out and say, Hey, I didn't like your politics, but I like what you're doing here on the trail. I'm going to support you. I'm going to help you. And it was a bit of a mind because there's these folks that I'd never really tried to reach out to. And in terms of my own personal behavior engaged with, but these were the folks who are some of those the most strongly supportive of me, right? So it really made me rethink how I approach those relationships, uh, much more valuing the individual rather than their ideology or their viewpoint on things. And then the last piece to this is specific to the trail, not to life experience, not to my time in politics, but specific to the trail, you are thrown into these situations where you have to rely on other people you have to be somebody who can be relied on. And I had no choice but to, uh, if I was going to survive, but to be part of that community, right? So I, I can remember a time when I was trapped on the side of a mountain with a couple other folks, one of whom was an Air Force vet, uh, uh, one was a defund the police uh, organizer, uh, when you're in situations like this, just talking to each other and not hitting the block button, but having good faith debate and discussions, you emerge out of that, I think, better. And when I look back and I revisit some of my approaches to, say, arguments or putting forward a position, sometimes I went way overboard in politics and that I wanted not just to win the argument, but to see the other person lose. But I think being in more organic environments like on the trail, just talking to people, 
uh, hashing out uh, debates like this. It's so obvious now in hindsight that as a result of having a conversation, both people can walk away better for the interaction. Whereas I think modern politics and partially how I tried to approach it before was one where one person had to lose and one person had to win. So I'd say just like anybody else's life, there's a lot of things that have been going on in my head through my experience and stuff like that. Part of it's political, part of it isn't. But, you know, I, I'm not asking for anybody's votes. I'm just a dude who's trying to do the best with what I've got and what I've learned so far and to try to make a positive difference in this world. It's really interesting as you were talking, except I hadn't really thought of ever before, but you know, you go back 20 years and we, you know, we'd go out for beers or for coffee and you talk to people and we, you know, we had friends across all political spectrums and you just kind of talk and, you know, sometimes you disagree and sometimes you'd agree, but there was a lot more give and take. And almost today's discourse is entirely on social media and, and it's a lot harder to have those nuanced discourses. And, uh, I just thought, yeah, just when you're around different people, you talked all like, you know, I spent, I spent a lot of time in huts for the, with the Alpine club and everybody's there. And you have these really interesting discussions with people, you know, a, a mining engineer and a not-for-profit exec. And you're like, oh, wow, we actually disagree. I disagree. I agree and disagree with each of them in some points, but you don't get that nuance on the sound bites or where people are just going for likes on social, social media. Um, boy, if we could all just spend more time intense and, uh, and huts, <laughs> we'd, we'd be better off maybe. Yeah, and I, and I think it, it makes you a better person for being exposed to all of this and being challenged, right? I think that modern politics and social media really encourages uh, that loyalty to your tribe and that uh, just echo chamber, but that's not where you're challenged. It's not where you're improved. Uh, I want to go back to the trail, and most people can't walk 2,600 miles in a summer, um, but are there certain parts of that? that you'd say, okay, if you have two weeks, you got to get to this, to this part of the PCT. Are there places that are as beautiful as what we have up here in, in Canada that people should, should plan a pilgrimage to one of these summers? Oh man, I, I felt so fortunate and landing, uh, in Palm Springs and, and starting at, uh, the border to Mexico, it almost felt like a different planet. Like almost all my experiences out in BC, Alberta and it also made me really value what we have, right? There's a lot of uh, a lot of the trail compares to Alberta and BC, but there's not much of it that's actually that much better. I hate saying this. Like, <laughs> I, I really wish that uh, I, I I really wish that I could say that. Uh, uh, yeah, it, I would say that there's some really stunning portions. If you've only ever done like Alberta hiking, I'd recommend, uh, I'd recommend the Southern California portions. Uh, the both terminuses, I think would be valuable either the start or the finish of the trail. If you're going northbound or southbound, uh, you would get the experience of meeting a lot of folks who are just starting the journey, uh, spending some time talking to them, or you could be with them for the final two weeks of the journey as well. That those would be probably the highlights, but as far as that uh, aside, there's incredible places around Lake Tahoe. Uh, the Cascades are fantastic. Uh, Washington is fantastic. The Sierra is fantastic. Death Valley is fantastic. Yeah, there's a there's an incredible itinerary that uh, you could do. But, you know, there's no real boring part of the trail except for a portion uh, near Lassen, which has just been devastated by a recent fire. So... You know, as long as you're not in something that burnt down last year, I'd say that uh, your odds are pretty good of 
uh, picking up on some world-class trail, uh, regardless of where you go in the 2,600 miles, but I'd still say, uh, really hard to compete with what we're so blessed and, uh, <laughs> been given here in Alberta and, uh, British Columbia, especially. And, and your trail name was Pathfinder. I'm always interested as to how people get that trail name. You know, how did you become Pathfinder? Yeah. So on the trail, uh, you, you sort of leave aside your regular life, your, your home life. And for hundred days, 172 days in my, in my case, you're, you're just all in on the trail experience and trail families form trail names are given. Usually it's something funny or, uh, tr- like characteristic. It's a nickname that, uh, you can't give to yourself, but other people sort of bestow upon you. And in my case, uh, it was as a result of it. It's challenging for me to speak of this because there was a time that we were essentially stuck in the Sierra and it was a combo. It was a couple of different combinations of factors, but the biggest thing I'd emphasize here is just my own ego and arrogance going into it. We're in a situation where myself and a few others were stuck on the side of a mountain. The weather had rapidly changed and we were sort of halfway up this mountain pass, we couldn't continue and we couldn't, uh, backtrack. We sort of had to shelter in place, uh, burn snow for water. And it was an incredibly humiliating and humbling experience because I had really overestimated our capabilities. I had urged everyone on into a situation and a setting that, uh, it put us in, uh, frankly, it had put us in danger and it really, it really challenged me on a personal level because after that point, I really endeavored and promised myself that I'd never put myself or other people in a situation in a setting like that. Uh, it was as a result of that that failure and that setback that we were able to make changes to how we approach things, how we planned our days that uh, ensured that we were able to finish uh, the rest of the Sierra section without uh, any injuries or anything like that. But it was as a result largely of what uh, I did about the experience, uh, doubling down on safety, doubling down on having the proper maps, the route guy, uh, the route finding and all the rest that, uh, after having lost the confidence and the respect of the people that I was with, gradually, I regained that confidence and I regained that respect that the people that was, uh, one of my trail friends at the time sort of bestowed upon me the name because he felt that I'd made good on what I said I'd do in terms of having a much more safety focused, uh, effort to our trip. Uh, going into it with much more humility. So, you know, it's it's a name that is a bit of, it feels a bit of bit, bittersweet to me, and it's a bit of a double-edged sword, but it's a, it's a reminder to me that uh, of all threats that I think nature can throw a man, at a man, I think uh, the worst one is our own ego and our arrogance and our overconfidence. So to me, the, the name is not necessarily just a feel-good thing. It's also a reminder that... Uh, uh, Safety is everyone's responsibility. And if you want to be in a position of leadership, you have to do absolutely everything necessary to ensure that the people who are following you are not putting, being put into harm's way. And, and what people, you know, don't realize is there are regularly, you know, people go missing on the PCT. It is, uh, especially with the early season with the snowpack and then with, you know, it melting and, and, the the raging rivers and, you know, freak storms, uh, it's dangerous to be in the Alpine uh, any time of the year, but especially early on in the season. So uh, I can imagine how challenging that would be. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jeremy, it's been really cool to hear about your experience uh, and to just kind of hear about kind of your transformation. I, I, I Maybe 
This is common in politicians. Uh, I haven't heard one who's who's done a big walk uh, <laughs> and then kind of you know reflected on it. So I want to thank you for coming on the show today and talking a bit about the PCT and how it impacted you. Well, I, I'm just so grateful for the community of supporters who, who stepped up and you, there's such there's such a, a diversity on the trail as far as the highs, the lows. The highs are higher, the lows are lower, and the the incredible amount of people, both uh, former former opponents, former supporters of mine, in terms of my politics or days in politics, those people rallied and. There are many, many times on the trail that I didn't know if I was going to make it or I was going to finish. And it was thanks to those notes of encouragement, uh, those supporters that I was able to really get uh, toward the end. And I think in our year, it was about one in 10 who started in Mexico were actually able to make it to Canada. And in my case, I just, I so wish that I could take personal credits. I so wish I could say it was my preparation. I, I wish I could say that it was my stubbornness. I wish I could say that I was special, but that would be 99% bullshit. The, the absolute truth of it is that I would not have made it as far as I did without the people that I met along the way, the, the incredible community of trail angels, uh, the volunteers who went out of their way to help, uh, the, the many other fellow hikers, some of whom joined me for thousands of miles, some of them joined me just for a couple of days. It was all these people who were the inputs. They were the uh, people who were responsible for getting me toward the finish. Of course, I had to walk a long way, but it was the other people that I met who were able, it's so essential in, in my success. So I wish that I take, could take credit for it, but it's the people that you meet along the way. And, and again, what they say is true. If you want to go fast, go alone. And if you want to go far, go with friends. Uh, that's, that's a, a great, you know, great point for anyone who's done one of these trips. It's, it's way better when you do with other people and, and, and you work with them. Uh, if people want to follow along or catch up with you now, where can they find you? Are, you know, are you act still active? Did you did your uh, social media addiction or habit return once you came back to civilization? Yeah, you know, I had to be cognizant of it, but uh, yeah, you can still find me on uh, Twitter and Facebook. Uh, every other Friday, uh, I'm a political commentator, actually, with my friend and former colleague uh, uh, Calgary Mayor Nahed Nenshi. So he and I weigh in on politics, but. You know, it lets me scratch the itch without actually myself uh, being in the fray. And I'm also the uh, new CEO of the uh, Glenbow Ranch Park Foundation. So uh, we run a, a nonprofit focused on the uh, protecting and conserving the 3,300-acre uh, uh, provincial park that's between uh, Calgary and Cochrane. And we have a really unique uh, co-management uh, relationship with Alberta Park. So I'd encourage anybody to come by, uh, visit us in the in the visitor center, and I'd be happy to give you a tour. But uh, you can find more details about that at uh, www.grpf.ca. I'll put links to those in the show notes. And if you are in Alberta, I think uh, uh, the Glenbow Ranch is like one of those gems that nobody knows about. It's just <laughs> spectacular. Uh, it's so special. And uh, I didn't go there until, yeah, I think it was like, during the pandemic, I discovered it, or maybe it's just before. It's just this beautiful little park that uh, is just so special. Um, with that, I want to thank everyone for listening to this episode of the Ted Adventures podcast. We'll be back next week to explore the world and hear about more epic adventures. Listen to other episodes of the Ten Adventures podcast on Amazon Music at amazon.com slash 10adventures.